0: The following is a podcast from Live it, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livetmke.org. Our sermon lesson for this evening is taken from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. I'll have it all on the screen here to start. Uh, but if you want to reference it later, you might want to open your Bibles. Uh, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Tonight, we're looking at God's remedy for our depression. Here we read, Now Ahab told Jezebel, these are the wicked king and queen of Israel at the time. Ahab told Jezebel everything that the, the prophet of God, Elijah, had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, and so he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he then came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better, my life is no better than any of my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. For the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way that you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet still I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him." This is God's Word. Tonight, as we look at God's remedy to our depression, We just start by acknowledging the fact that life is very difficult. Life is hard and life is complicated. And because life is so complicated and because human beings have a natural instinct to try to make sense of this world and understand life and figure out what their place is in this world, we also have a tendency to sort of oversimplify things. Religious people do this and irreligious people do this. It's called, in in, uh, philosophy, it's called reductionism. It's when you reduce things down to what you perceive to be palatable sizes but actually it gets so small that it doesn't tell the full story of what really is truly going on in life. We oversimplify. This absolutely is the case when it comes to issues like anxiety and depression and the general sadness that all of us face in life. Let me give you a couple for instances so you know what I'm talking about. If you have, let's say you're a non-religious person, you probably have a naturalistic view of life, which means that the only reality that you think exists is the reality that you can perceive through your senses, so your sight and your taste and your touch and that sort of thing. If you have a naturalistic view of everything, including sadness, anxiety, and depression, you're probably going to say that the main problem when you experience a depression is you have a chemical imbalance. And if that's the case, if that's the problem, then the solution is obviously going to be to do something to get the chemicals inside of you correct, to restore balance to those chemicals. In other words, generally speaking, when people say this, they're referring to either thought uh, therapy, talk therapy, positive talk, or more likely, medications. And we thank God for this. You know, the fact that modern medicine has advanced to a point where if you have a chemical imbalance inside of you, the idea that you can take things like antidepressants that balance out the serotonin levels in your body in the same way that you would take an Excedrin or an aspirin to balance, uh, balance you out so that you didn't have a headache, this is a tremendous gift from God that we should be thankful for. And yet, one of the interesting things about this is that in the past decade or so, the number of antidepressant prescriptions in the United States has more than doubled, and yet there's no research, at least none that I've come across, that actually suggests people are getting any less anxious or less sad or less depressed. In other words, we're putting stuff inside of us that changes our body chemistry, but we're still struggling with stuff like depression. And so all I'm saying is maybe depression isn't merely... physiological thing. Maybe there's more to it than that. Furthermore, on the other side of the spectrum, oftentimes, maybe you even grew up in a household like this, a very religious household, that when somebody struggles with things like uh, fear and depression and stuff like that, somebody says, well, that's just a spiritual problem. You don't have enough faith. And therefore, if the problem is spiritual in nature, the natural solution would be you have to Increase your faith, maybe ratchet up your prayer life. Now obviously, things like a strong, healthy devotion life, Bible study life, increased faith, worship, and a robust and healthy prayer life, obviously those are wonderful foundations to uh, health and wellness and a good outlook on life. One of the things that's been interesting to me, a revelation in recent years, is the fact that when I study through Scripture, one of the things I find is how many of God's people, struggled with depression. I mean, heroes of faith kind of people. Um, You read through and you you look at guys like Job and Jonah and Jeremiah and Elijah and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and you read through some of their writing and you very clearly get the impression this guy is writing as though, you know, it appears that he has seemingly clinical level depression. They had no shortage of communication with God. These are guys that God was directly dialoguing back and forth with. And so while obviously Bible study where God speaks to us and uh, prayer life where we speak to God in the divine dialogue is helpful and good, maybe depression isn't merely a spiritual issue. Well, what is it? If it isn't merely a physiological issue, if it isn't merely a nature-nurture issue, if it isn't merely a spiritual issue, what is it? Is it possible that it's a combination of things? Would it shock you if I said that the Bible says the exact same thing? You cannot reduce issues like this and sadness of life like this to one mere thing or another. It's actually this vast, complex, nuanced, balanced thing. And we figure that out today because we look at the case study of Elijah, which is one of the best pictures in Scripture for how to deal with overwhelming sadness in life. By diagnosing Elijah's problem and giving him a recovery plan, God tells us what leads us into things like depression and how you get out of things like depression. It's an incredibly important issue. We don't want to have a reductionistic, overly simplistic view of such things like the world has. We want to have the same kind of balanced and healthy and blessed view of things the way that God does, and then we can be a blessing to others as well. So here's what's happening in our account. The the backdrop to what we just read a few moments ago is Elijah had had one of the biggest ministry victories of his life. If you were to read through 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah goes to war, uh, a battle on the top of a mountain called Mount Carmel with the 450 plus prophets of the false god Baal. These prophets served the wicked king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, in Israel who were corrupting Israel spiritually. And so Elijah challenges them to a showdown at the top of Mount Carmel where they set up these two two altars. They say, whichever person's God, whichever prophet's God comes down and lights the altar on fire, that must be the real true God. Now in dramatic fashion, the Lord God of Israel, Elijah's God, comes down and consumes the altar. It's very clear to everyone who is present. And the prophets of Baal get run out of town and killed. Now you'd think in the midst of this tremendously overwhelming, dramatic victory, Elijah would be nothing but happy. He'd be on cloud nine and this would change everything for him. He thinks so too. This is the reason why he runs into the capital city at the time, the city of Jezreel. See, it's interesting that he does that because he essentially was a wanted man at this point. You know, think of him almost as having a bounty on on his head. And yet he goes into the heart of the capital city where Ahab and, and Jezebel rule. And why would he do that? The commentators will all tell you the only reason he'd run into Jezreel is if he thought one of two things was happening. Number one, Ahab and Jezebel, humbled by what just happened on Mount Carmel, would repent of their sins, turn from their wickedness, and submit to God. Or, if they still harden their hearts and refuse to turn to God, what else he thought would happen is the people of the city, who all knew about what happened here, this was the big news going on, they would have set up a coup to run Ahab and Jezebel out of town. So either way, he thought, I'm good, I'm safe. You know what happens? He gets into the town, and within a day, Jezebel sends him a letter. And here's what she says may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them the killed prophets of Baal the spiritual needle in Israel has not moved at all Sometimes we have this false way of thinking too, by the way. We sometimes think if God would just come down and he'd do something incredible, then everybody would repent, then everybody would believe, then we'd know for sure. Uh Uh-uh, doesn't happen. Didn't happen with the prophets of Baal in Israel. Didn't happen when Jesus rose from the grave. That didn't move the needle a whole lot for many people in Rome. That's not how faith works. Elijah thought it would work that way. You and I often think that would work that way. And Elijah, after having the biggest ministry success of his life, he now has a, another, a bounty put on his head. And he does the natural thing that any one of us would do when we were threatened with our lives. He runs. He's scared. He gets out of town. In fact, um, what we're told in the text is it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Just before this, he actually had told his, his ministry servant to stay behind. And Elijah didn't have a servant because he was rich. Elijah had a ministry servant because it was a ministry partner. So by him t- saying, My ministry servant can stay back, essentially what he's saying is, I'm quitting the ministry, I'm out. If this doesn't cause people to change, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. People don't change like that. I'm done with this. He's so sad, he goes, climbs under a tree, and asks God to die. See, what's happening here is the moment Elijah thought he was on the top of the world, the moment he got something that he thought was going to make all of the problems of his life go away, when he figured out it didn't make all his problems in life go away, It was such a psychological shock to him, it was such an enormous letdown that he emotionally collapses and he slips into depression. By the way, this is sort of a typical case of how depression generally works. Um, Depression essentially works like this, in the same way that every single one of us only has so much physical energy in life, we also only have so much emotional energy. And so let's say you were to go outside right now and start sprinting full tilt. You ran as fast as you could, as hard as you could. You might be able to get, I don't know, 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds, if you're in really good shape, you might be able to sprint for like 90 seconds. But at some point in time, if you kept pressing it, even if you were a world-class athlete, your physical energy would run out. You physically would become depleted and shut down and you physically collapse. And the exact same thing happens to us emotionally. As finite creatures, you and I only have so much emotional and psychological energy. Part of what this means is you and I have to be very careful about what we choose to give our emotional energy to. You can't just care about everything equally. You can't just care about things that don't matter, otherwise you're not going to have enough energy left to care about the things of life that actually do matter. But since we only have a finite amount of emotional energy, things like anxiety and stress absolutely rapidly deplete those emotional resources. And if you get to a depleted state for a prolonged period of time, what happens is emotionally you start to shut down. And it's a numbed emotional state that we generally refer to as depression. Uh, What happened to Elijah, something actually very similar happened to me in my own life, and I, I um, shared with you guys a little bit about this last week. I haven't hesitated um, in my adult life to share with people my own personal struggles with anxiety and depression earlier on in life and uh, what it did, um, how it was benef- beneficial for me spiritually and how the Lord gave me strength to overcome some of that and some of the things I learned along the way. In fact, that's kind of the basis of this series. But when I first, my first and worst experience with depression in my life was something similar. I actually had gotten something that I really wanted. Something that I had been hoping for and working for and I got it and I realized it didn't solve all my problems in life. I still had to get up the next day. I still had to face life. I still had to face the thousands of other inevitable issues that come up. And I psychologically almost couldn't even handle it and I sort of emotionally collapsed. What happened to Elijah? What happened to me? What happened to you if you've gone through something similar? Or a loved one has gone through something similar? Or potentially, how do you prevent something like this from happening? Or if you get into something like this, how do you get out of it? Well, we figure that out by looking at how God addresses the depression that Elijah faces here. Because most of us, at some point in our lives, whether it's incident-based, we lose a loved one, we experience rejection from a loved one, we lose a job, or some of us, by the way, just are wired a little bit more for stuff like this. We're kind of buzzing around with a little bit of anxiety all the time, and it doesn't take very long for our, our cups to get kind of full like that. How do you deal with this? Well, I want to show you that God does not have a reductionist, simplistic view of these types of issues. I want to show you how incredibly balanced and nuanced his approach is. I'm going to give you six quick points here that come out in the text. Number one, we'll start with nutrition. Okay, here's what the text says. All at once, an angel touched Elijah and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water he ate and drank. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank and he was strengthened by that food. It hasn't been until recent years in my life, probably in in my late 20s, where I started to actually take some inventory of the types of stuff that I was putting into my body, like the food that I was putting into my body. At some point in time, I realized that processed foods, like like Cheetos, and like anything that Little Debbie whips up, like pr- probably shouldn't be the staple foundation of my day-to-day dietary habits. You know, I mean, I, once in a while, I sometimes treat, but not you know my everyday sort of thing. Um, in the same way that I glorify God by managing my time to His glory, and you can glorify God by managing your money to His glory. It makes perfect sense that you can glorify God. By managing the types of things that you put into the thing which he calls in Scripture his temple, your body. Um, Look at the sensitivity that he shows to humanity here. He doesn't just correct Elijah's wrong thinking, he doesn't merely tell Elijah to pray more, he bakes him a loaf of bread. It's not unspiritual. God does not consider consider it unspiritual to bake Elijah a loaf of bread. By the way, with all due respect to those that might have uh, gluten allergies or starch allergies or whatever else, it, you know, for the rest of us, for many of us, there is nothing in life more immediately comforting than freshly baked carbohydrates. It's just like the most comforting thing. It's, it's, uh, baked goods are some of the most satisfying, comforting, fulfilling things that we experience in life. And so God bakes Elijah a loaf of bread. I love that. And he gives him a drink. He gives him water. Even though most of us might not say water is our favorite beverage, we we also recognize it's probably the most refreshing thing we ever drink. If you get caught in the middle of the desert, you're not praying for Starbucks, you're praying for water. So what does God do? He starts by refreshing Elijah with his nutrition. Okay? What else does he do? Personal touch. We're told all at once an angel touched him and the angel of the Lord came back and touched him a second time. Personal touch is, by the way, more than just a love language. Um, there was a wave of articles that hit mainstream uh, media in the, in the 1980s that talked about the necessity of human touch uh, for, for things like development in life. There's certain chemicals that are released from your brain when you experience contact with another human be- being that cannot come in any other way. Um, In fact, uh, it's particularly important in the development of children. Harry Harlow, right over here at UW-Madison, was one of the world-leading researchers on this particular subject. And he found that if you don't give little children, infants, enough time and attention and personal touch and warmth, they fail to develop actual uh, ability to form relationships. It's called reactive attachment disorder. If they don't get enough touching in childhood, they cannot form meaningful relationships throughout life. You know what that means? That means personal touch is not just nice, it's necessary for our overall health and wellness. God understands that for Elijah, and so God essentially gives a hug to a man who is in pain and hurting. Number three. Exercise. Uh, we're told that Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights until he reaches Horeb. Um, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that human beings invented treadmills after we invented other machines that help us get around from place to place where we don't have to move. In other words, we, human beings like the path of least resistance. We don't want to move if we don't have to. You know, we don't like to move, which is literally and metaphorically. We don't like to move to action in life. We don't want to. So we invent machines that will move for us and get us to places. And then when we realize how incredibly unhealthy it is not to move, we invent machines that we, we strap ourselves to and force us to move. Like treadmills and, and glides and, and stuff like that. Why is this? Well, we need movement psychologically, emotionally, physically. There's certain chemicals that are released. God knows that Elijah needs movement, too, and in the ancient world, a 40-day trek would have involved some sweat and some chemicals being released inside of him that would have been good for Elijah. Elijah also needs some rest. We're told he lays down under the tree and falls asleep. He ate and drank and then he laid down again. Lutherans aren't particularly inclined to shout amen when they hear certain points, but when God tells me, nearly commands me to take a nap, this is one of those moments where I'm inclined to shout amen. Uh, I love naps that much. And in fact, um, you know, the, the idea that, that human beings need this sort of rest uh, is actually programmed right into the work week. The world doesn't applaud you for naps. The world applauds you for working too hard. If you're a workaholic, you get a promotion and a raise. If you take a nap, you get fired. And I'm not suggesting you take a nap at work. But I am suggesting that you not, have not, do not have the exact same attitude about work that the rest of the world has because God says you're finite creatures and the reason that he programs a Sabbath day, which is a rest day into the week, is because he knows we're finite creatures and he wants us to realize that so that we realize we're dependent on him in life. Sleep is essential. Rest is essential. It's worshiping and obeying God to take time for rest and God knows Elijah needs rest. Biblical counsel. We're told in this section, uh, Elijah and God are dialoguing back and forth. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? God says to him twice. Go back the way that you came. After the fire came, uh, after the fire came a gentle whisper and God was in the whisper. Throughout the whole section, God is dialoguing with Elijah. And I said earlier that you know, sometimes religious people overly simplify issues like depression and say you just have to have more faith. Well, it might be an oversimplification, but that doesn't mean that you don't need to have faith. In other words, the remedy to depression might involve a few things more than just Bible study and prayer, but it certainly doesn't involve less than that. These are absolutely essential parts to have a healthy, healthy uh, outlook towards the world is having God speak to us His promises in His Word and having us pour out our hearts to Him in our prayer lives. That brings us to the, the final point here that we see, believing company. The last verse in the text says, "Yet I reserve seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed Him." I wasn't exactly sure what the title of this section, whether it was just friendship or meaningful relationships. Uh, or something like that, but it's essential that you understand God is saying, these are God-fearing, Christ-like believers that I've placed into your life, Elijah. You need to be using them. This is the doctrine of the church. You understand that no actual positive transformations happen apart from being cemented in community, let me put that positively, only positive changes, positive changes only occur within the context of community. Some secular uh, organizations understand this, unfortunately, better than the church, the modern church does. Weight Watchers gets this. AA gets this. Positive change only happens in the context of community, which is partially why God invented the church, The church is not this thing, and you know that. The church is these people. And you need to be cemented in the lives of one another because positive transformation will only occur in your life if you are transparently, accountably, Uh, encouraged and cemented in the lives of one another. That's the only way to truly know Christ because Christ lives in these people. That's the only way to truly reach your full potential as a Christian. That's the only way to be fully restored out of sadness and suffering in the world is to hear the promises and encouragement of your fellow Christians. God knows that. He tells Elijah that. He says, Elijah, who prior to this had been saying, "Woes me, little old me, I'm the only one left, you're not supposed to be in isolation. You're supposed to be in the lives of the 7,000 people who feel just like you. Okay, here's the big idea. The point today is you and I are not supposed to have the same kind of reductionist, simplistic views towards health and wellness, towards anxiety, depression, and sadness that the world generally espouses. You and I are supposed to have a more nuanced, more balanced, healthier, more sophisticated, more complex view of these issues just like God has for these issues. And only then, only when we see with eyes like God does, will we be able to navigate these issues ourselves and only then will we be able to be a blessing to others. Because if you don't have a comprehensive understanding of this, what you're often going to do is you're either going to shame or guilt people unnecessarily when they're going through sorrow struggles or... You might be dismissive of somebody else and you say, okay, you're going through that struggles, I recommend this pill. I'm not saying don't take the pill. I'm saying, what if you're just taking a pill to numb the guilt? Is that healthy for us? God has given us something to deal with guilt. It's repentance. That's how we healthily, in a healthy way, process guilt. So it's a very sophisticated, balanced view of these things that God has. And the final point that I want to share with you here tonight is this. You might be inclined to say, well, yes, God obviously tended carefully to the needs of his prophet uh, prophet Elijah, but Elijah, wasn't he like one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? Of course, God is going to give him the VIP treatment. But what about little old me? You and me, what we need to do is we need to remember Jesus at the cross, what he's doing there and why. Here's what it is. At the cross, Jesus has every human need pressed to the exponential degree physically emotionally psychologically relationally and spiritually he has every possible need and not a single one of them gets met at the cross none of jesus needs get met physically you remember he cries out i'm so thirsty and he cries out in agony because he's been beaten and flogged and crucified Psychologically, he cries out. Why? Because people are tormenting him by mocking him as he's doing something for them. Remember, people are are taunting him by saying, He's supposed to save the world. He can't even save himself. Well, he could save himself. He willfully chose not to save himself because he was saving the people who were taunting him. That's got to be so frustrating. Relationally, emotionally, his best friends deserted him in his darkest hour. He was ripped from the arms of his eternal Father at the cross. And spiritually, at the cross, he's going through hell. He's experiencing separation from the blessing of God. This is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I make this point all the time, but it's so fascinating to me that in the Gospels, there's only one spot where he doesn't call God Father. It's on the cross. And you know why he doesn't call him Father? Because at the cross, he can't call him Father anymore because he's been relationally ripped apart from God. Now, why? Why would Jesus on the cross have every possible need imaginable but voluntarily choose for them not to be met? Because he's switching places with you and me. He deserved to have every one of his needs met, but he denied that. And he allowed God to turn his face from Jesus so that he could turn his face towards us. The one man who is deserving to have his needs met chose to have none of his needs met so that we who are undeserving of having our needs met would be placed into the hands and into the care of the Almighty God. God knows all your needs. And he well provides for them. We heard today, just a few moments ago, that Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. By your sins, by your rejection, by your loss, it doesn't matter. If you are weary and burdened, he has a solution. It's not a a self-help program, it's him. Come to me, who y'all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you not only a nap, but I will give you eternal rest from your worry. I will give you the promise of eternal joy that if you let it to the degree that you believe it, it will overwhelm the sadness that you experience right now. Let's close with the prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight as we come to your table, many of us come with heavy hearts. We experience sadness, anxiety, and perhaps even depression that results from our own mistakes, from the rejection that we faced in life, from the lack of love, or from the losses that we experience. Be with us in this time of need. Jesus, if you were willing to die to provide for our greatest need, you certainly are capable of and willing to meet all of our needs. And that is exactly what you promised to do. Help us simply to have humble hearts that believe that and therefore give us strength to get up and face every day with the hope that you are with us and you are guiding us on the path to the home that you've prepared for us where our tears will be dried up and our sorrow will be completely gone. We thank you for this and we pray this in our risen Savior's name, amen.